and it would be a shame if we shut that flow of capital off. But on the other, on the other hand, if we don't do it well, we're going to see a lot of wasted money, and we're going to see、uh, problems that become much bigger than they are today. Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome back to our podcast. Your podcast, where we explore the collective future we are all hurtling towards at sixty-seven thousand miles an hour. Today's topic covers a concept of giving people credit for their larger carbon reductions, while also allowing other organizations to offset their carbon emissions with those credits. And if you know anything about the voluntary carbon markets, you know how fraught with challenges they have been. And if you don't, Well, you're about to find out. But first, the requisite details. I'm your host, Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I support startups in the energy transition with my PR firm, Technica Communications, and I support everybody in this space with women in clean tech and sustainability. Thank you to Resource Labs for having us on their network, and welcome to all of you Earthlings who found us there. Some new things we have going on is a newsletter, which you can join to get the latest and greatest on what we're up to, in-person appearances that are coming up, and when new shows drop. That's one of the many ways that you can join our community. The other way is social media: Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and of course our Patreon page. We have several extended interviews up there now, so feel free to go check them out. And we're posting new content every week. Or you don't have to do any of those things. You could just be a listener and a learner, and we still appreciate you. Now, Earthlings, if you think of a future where some carbon emissions are still occurring, no matter how small, it makes sense to me that we have market mechanisms that could account for those emissions. Ideally, you would want some type of pain to the emitter in the form of cost and benefit to the entity、uh, that is sequestering the carbon, and. You want that system to be reliable and trustworthy, especially if this is going to be voluntary. Done well, the voluntary carbon markets could emerge as a powerful tool to support carbon sequestration and perhaps encourage more solutions. But historically, people don't always trust these markets as much as they need to to actually put their money into them. How many of you have、uh, been purchasing a an airline flight or、uh, renting a car or doing something that、uh, you know you're going to、uh, rack up some carbon emissions for? And the entity that you're purchasing that、um, opportunity from offers you, you know, to offset your carbon. How many of you actually do that, or do you think twice because you think, hmm, do I really trust that if I put my money into that? Like it's actually going to be actually, you know, offsetting some carbon, or am I just you know throwing money into a hole? Nobody wants to throw money into a hole, unless you're buying a boat, maybe because you know that's a delightful hole to throw money into sometimes. So I've heard. So anyway, carbon markets, large topic, and we're going to tackle it in several parts. This is the first episode of three, and in this one, we're speaking to someone who understands policy. The practicality and the problems around voluntary carbon markets. His name is Sasha Mackler, and he's the executive director of the Energy Program at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. So you know, as we think about the energy transition,、uh, there are so many dimensions to it. But really,、uh, you know, principally, what we are 
you know, seeking to do is to change the way we produce and consume energy in this in this country and and globally, uh, so that we can reduce the impact of the sector on our climate. Um, and so there are lots of different ways to do that, from regulations to technology policy. And the voluntary carbon markets have a role to play, I think, in in this whole transition. Um, and they have developed really as a mechanism to help connect um, sort of consumers of, um, you know, on, on, in, in the marketplace with energy producers or other actors in the energy and climate system um, that, that enable sort of capital to flow to certain kinds of projects that could reduce emissions that would otherwise not have happened. Uh, and so they kind of operate outside of the policy domain. Um, but we are finding that, you know, the, the, the decarbonization policies that we have in place are really not fully developed. They're immature and they don't touch all sectors of the economy. And so what the voluntary carbon markets do is enable private transactions to occur that can help Help to support um, some of these activities that reduce emissions. Mm-hmm. So how so so these private transactions? How do they work? You know, just in terms of a thought experiment, you can have a you know a company that wants to produce a cleaner form of energy, um, but it might cost a little bit more. Uh, and so to get the, you know, the business case or the business model to work on a particular project, um, you know, they'll sell the energy and they'll have to sell it usually at a market price. And then what they'll do is, is try to monetize the environmental or climate benefit of that project. Um, and then the, so what they'll do is they'll develop a credit that's a voluntary credit um, that has the environmental attributes of that project that they'll try to sell separately in the marketplace and bring that revenue into their project. So you can also do that in other ways, like reducing emissions uh, or, you know, um, from de- deforestation or agriculture. And if there's a way to kind of document clearly what has happened from an environmental perspective or a carbon perspective, you can develop a credit and then you can sell that credit and that revenue can then flow into the project. That's what's been going on in the voluntary carbon markets now is there's a lot of counterparties, you know, producers of credits and consumers of credits that want to meet their own uh, goals um, from an emissions perspective that maybe are not regulated by policy, but they have their own internal goals. And so um, they, they go into the voluntary carbon markets to try to, um, to tr- try to find the, you know, the, 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 the reductions that are out there and they'll buy the credits if you're a consumer and you'll pay the dollars, the money to the producers of the credits. Um, it's, it's not a regulated sector really at all, but it does meet the needs of both of those parties. And so that's what's starting to evolve here in the voluntary markets. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's that's what we see with the, with these corporations. And so, obviously, we want as a society, we want to incentivize um, uh, people to to build these projects that have an offset um, that they can sell. We want to incentivize corporations to clean up their their carbon emissions long term, knowing that that does take time. They can use these offsets in the interim to address their their goals, but we don't want them to just be throwing money at the situation the entire time. We want them to actually abate their emissions. Yeah, um, and I think that's where that's where the challenge 
of the voluntary carbon markets comes in is that, like you said, it's voluntary. There's no regulations. And um, there's been a, a bit of a credibility or reputation challenge that this market has had. I mean, most recently, um, there was this certification body, uh, Vera, that sold tens of millions of dollars of worthless offsets to major companies that were then claiming you know, that they, they were, um, they were meeting their goals and then the CEO subsequently resigned. So, you know, what happened here? How did these offsets become quote unquote worthless? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question and it's really worth spending a little time on this. I mean, you know, why is this, um, whole set of activities taking place? Right. And, and, Carbon credits and carbon offsets uh, and the voluntary carbon markets, I think, uh, in principle, are a terrific idea because they, they enable dollars to flow into activities and projects that, you know, could be and should be, you know, you know, worth pursuing. Right. And that that if we don't have the, all the right policies in place right now to really drive as quickly as we should be moving towards uh, something like net zero by mid-century, the advantage or, or sort of what's really appealing about the voluntary carbon markets is they create another channel for capital to flow. Right. And so we what, what you just described with Vera is one example, I think, of sort of the problems that we're seeing in a market that is pretty immature right now and um, not very well defined and well regulated. Um, and so, you know, what we can think about are, okay, what are the attributes of, of a carbon credit? And I think there's sort of three key attributes that we need to keep in mind as we think about this uh, this whole marketplace. One is measurability. Do we know precisely what is happening in the activity? And in, and in terms of, you know, what, what is being sold in terms of a carbon credit, can we, can we measure with confidence the amount of carbon that's being saved or reduced or removed by a certain set of activities? So that's, and that's not always easy if you're talking about things that are, you know, for example, in the forestry industry or in the soils, you know, and, and agricultural space where, um, you know, it's pretty clear, I think at a, at a high level, um, that, you know, if you do certain, if you, if you change your practices in certain ways, there's going to be a benefit, but it's very hard, I think, um, in a lot of cases to be precise about what that benefit is. It's hard then to create a specific thing like a ton uh, that you can have confidence in. So measurability is one of the challenges. Uh, a second attribute that I think is extremely important and I think it's becoming, uh, I think, more appreciated now that we need to be a little bit more rigorous around it are the timescales. When it comes to um, to many credits or many activities, um, you know, especially if you go outside of the energy sector, uh, the, you know, the time scale of the carbon benefit could be on the order of decades or maybe in a forestry project, you could get sort of, you know, half century or a century of sort of clear benefit. But the, you know, but the climate and the CO2 that's being emitted into the atmosphere from energy activities, that CO2 is having an impact on the climate for millennia, you know, thousands of years. And so um, a lot of, you know, sort of the value of a carbon credit 
to a consumer of the credits, like a corporation or something, um, you know, really what they want to do is, uh, is make a claim that the fossil energy that they're using, uh, is being offset by a credit. But if the credit only has a time scale of you know, tens of years or, you know, at best a hundred years, you know, is it the appropriate tool to be offsetting CO2 from a different activity in a different sector that will have an impact for thousands of years? So there's this mismatch in, in timescales, which I think is becoming increasingly clear to many of us who are paying attention to this space that it's just not a workable system in the way it's being used now. Not that it can't be uh, a workable system going forward, but that's a real fundamental problem. So Timescales is one, measurability is another. And then the third important piece as we think about, you know, the, you know, the calculus around how important uh, a tool voluntary carbon markets could be is additionality. And this is the concept of is my money, is are the dollars that I'm putting into these activities actually making something happen that wouldn't have happened on its own? Uh, because if you are not actually driving a change in practice that is delivering an incremental reduction in carbon, then you don't really have a, a basis for making a claim that, you know, is a valid activity that can offset, you know, your own, you know, carbon emissions. And, and additionality is a really hard thing to get your head around. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, all three of those attributes sort of together collectively underpin a carbon credit in the voluntary carbon markets. And uh, what we're discovering in a lot of the registries and methodologies and protocols that are out there that are looking to kind of uh, be the basis for the generation of credits is they don't all do the same job in each of those, in each of those three dimensions. Um, and some of them really don't do a good job at all on them. And so you have, um, at the end of the day, you have some credits that are, you know, flawed or not really even valid in any sense that are being traded out in the marketplace. And it is a problem, number one, because you have, then you have dollars being spent on, on things that aren't really that help, helpful or they aren't really doing what people think they're doing. And, uh, you create a lot of sort of, um, lack of trust in the marketplace generally and in the stakeholder community that could undermine this whole market over time, which would be a very bad thing, right? So you can, um, you know, you, you, you can sort of see today some of the problems that are starting to crop up in these markets. And, um, and I think it's super important that we find some pathways to resolving them so we can take advantage of this capital that's out there that's sitting on the sidelines and that wants to flow into climate beneficial projects. And it would be a shame if we shut that flow of capital off. But on the other, on the other hand, if we don't do it well, we're going to see a lot of wasted money and we're going to see uh, a lot of lack of credibility and we're going to see problems that become much bigger than they are today that um, really blow this whole thing up. And so that's that's what we're worried about right now. And those, that's what those are some of the issues that we're thinking about. And that's what got Vera into a lot of trouble, just, just circling back to kind of, you know, the, the original question you asked. They have um, a number of credits that they issued uh, in different parts of the world that, you know, when, when scrutinized sort of became clear, weren't really delivering the 
climate benefits that you know that they were that what they were claimed to deliver to produce and then you know it's just it just really spiraled from there and so it's a big problem because they're one of the largest provider of credits and now there's a whole you know integrity issue associated with vera but also then it bleeds over into the marketplace as a whole so we've talked a lot about problems it seems like there's you know some some high level you know philosophical paths forward in terms of solutions, but where does the rubber really meet the road here? How do we improve these voluntary carbon markets into a place where people can have confidence in them? Yeah, I mean, so this, this is really the big question, right? And and I and I think it's um, there are a number of, of ways in which we can do that, and and it's really um, important that both the producers of the credits and the projects associated with um, generating credits and the consumers of these credits really start to roll up their sleeves and think about what is the business here and what are we trying to accomplish and there is a third sort of uh category of of party um that's that's involved here that also uh has a really important role to play and that those are the registries and the methodologies the groups that are generating the credits that can then be uh you know transacted against in in the marketplace and right now it's kind of a wild west out there there's lots of different sort of approaches to generating credits through registries some more rigorous than others and there are many buyers of these credits that uh, really don't do their own homework they just sort of rely on the registries if they you know they're not that big or they don't have sophisticated teams thinking about climate and carbon. They're just really, their goal is to go out and buy credits and sort of offset, you know, use them to offset their own emissions. And, um, and you kind of have a race to the bottom if this is, if, if this is kind of the way that this market will work because they can shop around in the marketplace for the lowest cost credit because that's, you know, this is, this is ultimately something that they're doing voluntarily. So they're going to, you know, try to, try to buy the most credits that they can at a certain at a certain price, and so they will naturally gravitate towards the least cost credits, which you know, not surprisingly, are probably the lowest quality credits. Um, and so, there's a real need for consumers of credits to spend a little bit more time thinking about what it is they're looking for and develop those strategies to actually make sure that that's what they're buying. Uh, and there's a real need, I think, on the, on the part of the registries to to get some to get some standards in place that I think are a little bit more rigorous than what we have today, and then of course on the producer side, we need to be creating the incentives, and that really I think right now will be reflected in pricing uh, for the high quality projects to really be the place where the capital flows, and so that means the prices really probably have to go up. Um, for for the projects that are really delivering climate benefits to be able to find the capital that they need. And, you know, it really does come down to, I think, <clears throat> this issue of how do we develop the right approach to the market so that the permanence issues, the measurability issues, and the additionality issues are really, really designed in ways that have a lot of integrity underneath them. And we're not there yet, right? And that's going to have to come from, I think, you know, better standards, better standardization across methodologies, and uh, a demand 
and a, a recognition by the buyers of credits that they will probably need to be spending more money to get the credits that they ultimately want to be able to use, right? So now it's uh, just, you can find credits for all different kinds of prices, for all different kinds of activities. And we need to, I think, have a much more sophisticated approach to, uh, to the creation of these credits and how they are how they are actually utilized. And, you know, you can, you can even differentiate it a little bit further. Um, there are lots of natural solutions out there like better forestry practices or, you know, forestry conservation um, or, you know, different agricultural practices that are, that are really, you know, quite clearly good to be doing for the climate, for soil health and forest health and, and other things. But they, they might not be the most appropriate sort of set of activities for generating credits that can offset fossil fuel emissions just because the time scales are so different. Um, so uh, it's not to say that there shouldn't be a voluntary credit that is generated from these activities or there shouldn't be, you know, ways in which corporations, for example, could invest in projects like this. But we need to be much more careful than we have been up to now in terms of uh, how we allow corporations to use these credits to offset emissions because of the measurability issues, but also really because of these permanence issues, because you're not, you're not sort of um, working on the same time scales. And so um, lots, lots of different things that need to get sort of figured out here, but th that's, that's sort of fundamentally what needs to happen. Yeah. And, and the measurability and the time scales, is this why, uh, I was doing some research before our, our, our meeting today, and it, it sounds like there seems to be a move away from what are considered like nature-based projects and, and closer to projects that are more specifically carbon removal uh, activities, because simply because it's faster and it's more measurable. In the taxonomy of, you know, what, what credits are out there, you know, the, the easiest sort of distinction to make, I think, in my mind, are sort of engineered removal projects, um, which are, um, you know, things like direct air capture of CO2 or even sort of biochar or biomass with carbon capture where you're, where, where you're taking, um, you know, captured CO2, either in the form of, you know, which is easily measured, right? Either in the form of like a biomass, like a tree or captured CO2, um, that you know you have a you have a machine that can basically just collect it out of the atmosphere, and um, and then taking it out of the carbon cycle, right? So uh, with a, with a direct air capture or DAC machine, you can capture the CO2. You can uh, have a volume of CO2 that's easily measured. You've taken it from the air, and if you take it out of the carbon cycle by injecting it into a geologic reservoir, you know with very high certainty that you've taken CO2 out. It's a removal, and it will be put somewhere uh, for thousands of years, probably much longer than that. That's a very high quality removal. That also, um, and no surprise, costs a lot more than than a shift in your, you know, forest rotation practices in a commercial sort of, you know, timber project. Um, both both activities, you know, you know, a, a, uh, are good to be doing for the climate, but they're very different. But if both of those projects generate the same piece of paper, which is a carbon credit, uh, and try to and put those out into the marketplace, you know, 
it's it's no surprise that you're going to see a lot of demand for the Forest one over the DAC one just because it's it's cheaper and you're getting the same certificate. This, so that's a real problem right now. And the commoditization without any other sort of nuance or, or sort of attributes associated with it. Um, so right now we've seen sort of some buyers in the market sort of making that determination themselves that, oh, I'm only going to go into the high quality removals marketplace uh, and they're willing to pay more for that. But um, you know, we need everybody, you know, all the players really to sort of accept this notion of time scales and quality if we're going to scale this market and maintain the integrity to it. So there, there, there are lots of different ways you can find pathways for carbon removals. DAC is one that I just described. You can do biomass with carbon capture. That's another. And there, there are other ways. Some are open system, which are, which are maybe cheaper, but they have, um, more measurability challenges associated with them. But, but really this, this distinction between removal and offset and time scales needs to be better integrated into the actual product that is being sold in the market. And that's, that's, I think, where the next frontier is when we think about design of these markets and the policies and the standards associated with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also over, oversight, you know, is, is this, you know, is this a, a marketplace that we want sort of, overseeing itself in terms of of quality and efficacy or, or or is this something where you want an outside body overseeing it because i mean come on business is business and there's always going to be bad actors there will be people who make mistakes and 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 honest oversights that then become you know very detrimental to the broader market. So my question for you is like, where's the oversight now for this market broadly? And, and, and what do you think is going to be the best solution to ensure um, the, the quality and the measurability and the integrity that, that we, that I think collectively we would want from a voluntary carbon market system? Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, this is really probably the most active area right now in the voluntary carbon markets is, is, is the standard setting, right? How do we ensure that whoever is putting, you know, certifying credits and putting them on the market, they adhere to uh, a certain sort of baseline set of criteria around quality and other things. And so, um, uh, there's a lot of work to be done. In, in this front, we haven't figured it out yet. Um, you know, whether it's a sort of self-regulating body within the industry that sort of develops these standards or it's something from the public sector, like, you know, here in the U.S., we're sort of thinking about, you know, is, is there a role for the federal government here um, in maybe not you know, regulating the markets directly, although maybe over time that might be the actually the best approach, but I'm not sure we're we're there yet. But at least in ensuring, you know, there's a there's a minimum standard to these markets and ensuring that there's no fraud occurring in these markets um and um and disclosures really more more requirements for disclosures on the part of companies that are buying the credits so that they're more on the hook to uh, pay more attention to the kinds of credits that they're purchasing and um, using those credits in an appropriate way um, so there's different pathways here that could get us to the right outcome and it's probably in reality going to be be a, be a combination of things but 
this distinction, I think, uh, that we're sort of fumbling our way towards between the nature-based solutions and the engineered solutions for carbon savings, carbon removals. I, I, I think that's kind of a fundamental um, it's a fundamental idea that we, we need to somehow bring into the markets in a more formal way. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's, it strikes me, it's like, it's in the market's best interest to figure out how they can regulate themselves and set up these standards and provide this uh, efficacy and accuracy in these activities. Because if they don't, then the regulators are going to step in because ultimately it becomes a consumer protection issue, right? Uh, right, because the 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 buyers of credits will just see too much risk here, um, and and I think that latter scenario would be very bad outcome for what we're trying to accomplish here with climate, because we need those buyers to be in the market investing in good projects, right? And so if the voluntary carbon markets lose lose confidence, if people lose confidence in them entirely, so that's not, I think, the direction we want to head in. But if we're going to avoid that outcome, we need really, really more rigor in this marketplace and we need more sophistication on the part of buyers and sellers and certifiers and that's kind of where the where, where the action needs to be right now this has been a fantastic conversation thank you so much sasha for all your insights is there a question you thought i'd ask or a topic you uh wanted to discuss that we haven't touched on um well let's see uh we haven't you know you know one of the Big questions that that I see kind of unresolved right now is you know in the carbon capture uh, space, you know you can do direct air capture, which is very clearly um, you know the best form of removal, I think, um, also the highest cost. Uh, it's a very clear credit right there. If if you did carbon capture on a point source like in a like a fertilizer facility or a power plant. Um, does that deserve a credit in the same way that a direct air capture project would? Um, it's it's delivering a climate benefit, um, but you know what's and I actually don't have the answer to this question. I don't know how I would answer it, but that 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 to me seems like a really interesting question, right? So there's so many different flavors of carbon savings and carbon credits and carbon removals. How the market sort of makes those distinctions, I think is, is a big open question. And then how, you know, what sort of attributes are associated with the credits in the marketplace themselves? And I, I appreciate you bringing it up because it is something to explore. I mean, I've, I've moderated uh, stages at hydrogen conferences in Houston. And what I took from that whole experience was, look, we all agree that um, blue, blue hydrogen is better, but none of us are going to produce it unless we're all required to cap our emissions together, right? And I was like, oh, great, fantastic. This is really inspiring, super excited about this. Now, if you allow it to be, um, to create a credit for an offset, then now you've incentivized those existing manufacturers to produce hydrogen in a slightly cleaner way, right? And, and we kind of see this with cap and trade programs, but those aren't universal. And, and you ultimately want to move the emission, you want to move the manufacturers or the polluters away from creating those emissions permanently. You don't want to just let them have a, a Band-Aid solution. Um, as, as policy comes into 
into play here, right? Then the carbon markets are going to have to change, right? So if, if there is a cap and trade system or some other set of regulations on, um, on some of these activities, you know, this additionality sort of threshold will be evolving over time. And so the sorts of activities that could generate a credit will be changing over time. So for example, a blue hydrogen facility today where there's no policy, you know, I would argue probably should get some kind of a credit. But over time, if we have the right sort of policies in place, that um, those those projects will be kind of probably regulated in some way where, you know, they're not going to be able to generate a credit anymore because they would have to have done that to meet and accommodate the policy. And so it will be what could generate a credit will have to be something that goes beyond what the policy requires. And so that additionality attribute should be sort of a virtuous signal to continually improving what the carbon markets are, you know, are supporting over time. Earthlings. These voluntary carbon markets are tricky. On the one hand, you want to incentivize players to capture or sequester carbon emissions, yet verifying the validity and success of those carbon reduction projects can be very difficult, especially the more nature-based they are. And on the other hand, you want to get corporations to pay for the emissions, but you don't want to give them carte blanche to just keep emitting and see it as the cost of doing business to pay for these uh, credits, especially if it's a hard to abate sector. And, and, and the cost of the pain needs to be bad enough that it's better for them in the long run to change their operations so that they don't generate carbon emissions. It's a very tricky equation to figure out. Now, frankly, I think having a voluntary market behooves businesses compared to the re regulated market, and that's called the compliant carbon market, and it mostly shows up as cap-and-trade programs, uh, which we'll cover in a future episode. Also, in a future episode, we're going to do a tech spotlight on a startup that's developed some software and analysis tools to bring more rigor to various types of credits. So to hear them tell it, large corporations are working with them because their solution gives those companies more confidence. And that's what any market needs, right? Confidence. And I think the voluntary carbon markets, they're going to get there. And it's, you know, it's going to take them some time to rebuild their reputations, and especially after the revelations from this past year. So stay tuned for these upcoming episodes. Uh, the best way to do that is by joining our newsletter and follow us, following us on social media. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Also, please share this podcast with a friend of yours if you feel so inspired. Or, you know, you can just be yourself, just as you are. You're enough. And with that, Earthlings, we will see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. Please take care of it, because it's the only one we have. <laughs>